We turn now to our sermon passage for this morning found in the book of Acts, chapter 19, beginning in verse 13. You recall that the Apostle Paul has worked unusual miracles, even items of clothing that touched his body were brought far and wide and produced miracles and the casting out of demons. And now we read of men who seek to capitalize on that ministry of Paul. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there are seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came, confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Amen. Please be seated. Superstition is the blind attempt to understand and manipulate, at the very least appease, the unseen spiritual realm. But it is unseen which is why when men seek to do so on their own, they are blindly stabbing in the dark, and they are merely inventing uh, fictitious principles and rules and actions regarding how to interact and how to prevail and how to manipulate that unseen realm. This is why people so foolishly come up with the ideas such as reading the astrological signs or the cracks in one's hand telling their future, or tossing salt over your shoulder, or being afraid of a black cat crossing your path. These are all desperate and blind attempts to understand something about the unseen spiritual world and trying to control it, at least appease it in this life. But they can't see it. And so they're simply coming up with these fictitious principles and ideas that are foolish. As Christians, we have the word of God that shines a light upon this unseen spiritual world. We have the word of God that declares to us what that world is like and how we are to interact with it. Our Lord God himself is a spirit invisible to our eye, 
And yet in the word, he describes and reveals himself to us and how we are to obey him and how we are to interact with him and what we can and what we cannot do in this unseen spiritual realm. The word of God shines a great light upon that which is otherwise complete darkness to us. That otherwise men handle in a superstitious manner. But there are some, in fact, who, while they are superstitious and therefore have really no clue about this unseen spiritual realm, yet they have grasped some slivers of the truth and used them in a superstitious manner. And truly, this is the worst of all. It is one thing to concoct fictitious rules and ideas out of whole cloth, It is another to take fragments of the truth and that which is holy and profane it and use it in a superstitious manner. Well, that is what we see in our passage of the men who claim to be exorcists this morning. They take some fragments of truth and use them in a most profane and superstitious manner to their own undoing. They gain and they reap the results of this evil. And there are others, however, as we go on in the passage, who respond much more fair-mindedly and much more righteously as they understand the lesson of this encounter. And so we'll divide our passage under these two headings regarding these two groups. First, verses 13 through 16, the attempted exorcism. And then verses 17 through 20, the magnifying response. We begin then with this attempted exorcism. When we read here of these men, we are told some details about them. They are itinerant Jewish exorcists who are very much related to Judaism, even sons of the chief priests. We learn then first of their occupation. What do they do? They go about everywhere, presenting themselves as exorcists, as those who are able to cast out evil spirits. The word exorcist here in the Greek literally means to put someone under a curse or to make someone, compel someone to take an oath. And so they are trying to compel these evil spirits with some sort of oath or formula to depart from those they afflict. They are trying to do this, I say, because you will note that though they go everywhere announcing themselves as exorcists, and though they go everywhere declaring and gaining money, no doubt, to cast out evil spirits, when they come to this evil spirit, what does he say? Who are you? I I don't know who you are. You would imagine that if these men were really exorcists and they went here and there and everywhere with the power to cast out demons, this demon would say, oh, I know who you are and I'm afraid of you because you have real power over me and demons like me. But he doesn't know who they are, which implies that they really do not have any such power. They are not feared by the demons in the least, Rather, they are going about as frauds, as charlatans, no doubt gaining money for it, and saying that they have this ability to cast out evil spirits, which they do not have. 
They are much like, therefore, some of the TV evangelists you might see who go about uh, doing miracles everywhere and turn out to be nothing more than frauds and charlatans who are in it for the money. Oh, that is who these men are, apparently, given this passage. They're not known to the spiritual realm because they have no power in it. They're only known in the physical realm where they seek to reap their gain. It is clever of them to come to Ephesus, however, to ply their trade because Ephesus is a wealthy city and it is very much invested in the supernatural, invested in this magic, in this superstition. We see from the books that they burn how much they spend on these practices. And so here come men to this rich town that spends a great deal of money on the very things they promise to do, using words and incantations and spells and using oaths and certain formulas they claim to be able to cast out demons in this most wealthy and interested town. That is who they are. But further, notice that Luke takes pains to tell us something about their religion. When he calls them Jewish exorcists, he's not saying their ethnicity is Jewish, so much as he's speaking of their religion. We see this confirmed when he talks about their relationship to the chief priest, sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, they are connected to the religion of Judaism. They are Jews by religion, not Christians, is a point he is making. He also makes this point when he describes what they say. Notice that they cast out demons in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, not whom we preach, not in whom we believe, not in whose name we come as his servants, but we preach, we try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus through that Paul guy has been preaching. They are not believers here, you see. They are not themselves those who hold to Jesus Christ as a Savior. They are simply using his name for their carnal purposes. There is no worse fraud than one who comes in the name of the Lord Jesus to commit his fraudulent, deceitful activities. There is no greater charlatan than one who uses the name of the Lord Jesus in order to reap gain for himself on this earth. These are not men who are simply in over their heads. These are not men who simply are trying to do good. These are men who are wicked and profaning the name of the Christ in whom they do not believe themselves, but trying to use that name for their own purposes. But why, then, try to use his name? Why do they think this will work? Well, they are clearly presumptuous. Notice what Luke says about them in verse 13. They took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus and to exorcise these demons. They took it upon themselves. 
They were not given authority to do this. They were not authorized by God. They were not commissioned by the Lord. They took it upon themselves. They presumed they had this authority and power. And yet authority comes from God and from God alone. As Paul says in Romans 13, there is no authority except by God. And so they are claiming for themselves and taking upon themselves in a presumptuous, arrogant manner authority they do not have that has not been given to them by God. And they step forward as if they have as experts and powerful men ability to cast out demons which they do not have at all. But more than that, why would they presume that the name of Jesus Christ would work for them, so to speak. Well, they knew that Paul was preaching this Jesus Christ. They referenced that in our passage. No doubt they recognized the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ and his servant Paul, who is able to take garments that touch his body and send them throughout the region and heal everyone far and wide. And so they're trying to capitalize on this fame and this ministry of Paul in the name of Jesus. Let's try that too. Let's do that also. Maybe that will work for us. Maybe people will lump us in with that ministry and we can gain even more. Remember a man previously in the book of Acts, Simon the Magician, was eager to gain this sort of power for himself. And he offered Peter money that he would have the power of the Holy Spirit to work these wonders amongst the people. Do you remember what uh, the Apostle Peter said in response to Simon the magician's request to buy this power from them? In Acts chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, we read this. In response, uh, sorry, Acts, in response to uh, Simon the Magician. Acts chapter 8, verses 20 through 23. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray if God perhaps would forgive the thought of your hearts. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. What a response Peter gives to this man who's only trying to buy this power and perhaps use it for good. What a response because he says, in effect, if you think this can be bought and purchased and used at your own whim and will, then you are clearly apart from Christ and poisoned and bitter and wicked. Well, how much more these men who didn't even offer to pay for this gift or sacrifice anything for it, but presumed it nonetheless for their own gain. How much more wicked these men who step forward as if they have authority over the unseen realm where they have none, and they abuse the name of Christ to suggest they do. You may recall in Luke's Gospel, Luke 9, verses 49 through 50, the disciples went to Jesus. They were concerned. They said, Jesus, somebody is 
casting out demons in your name and he's not with our group. Re- rebuke him and, and make him stop. And he said, no. He who is not against me is for me. And that is not what he says of these men. These men are not for Jesus Christ. They are not believers in Jesus Christ. They are not united to Christ. They do not have the Lord Jesus as their Savior. They are simply using his name in this profane and superstitious way. But how did they imagine it would work? Well, they were using it as a formula. That's what these exorcists did. That's what these books that were burned would have done. They would have contained all these magical spells and incantations and formulas. Men had invented in their blindness trying to understand and manipulate the unseen world. But here's a book they claim here are the keys and the secrets. Use these words, say this this way. And the unseen realm will respond. No doubt these men likewise were coming with these formulas, these magical formulas of inherent power and mystical power. And so they used the name of Jesus in that way as if the name of Jesus is a magical incantation as if the name of Jesus is full of inherent, intrinsic power that any fool could wield for whatever he desires. They profaned the name of Jesus Christ. What does the name of Jesus Christ mean? The name Jesus means Jehovah saves. When we use the name Jesus, we are declaring he is the Savior from God. He himself is God, the Savior. We are declaring there is no hope of salvation outside of Jehovah saves. We are looking to him and in him alone for hope and for help to free us from evil. When these men used his name, they used it without any belief or trust in him. They profaned the name of Christ. And they did so trying to work miracles in this way. Because what is the purpose of a miracle? Remember what we learned last week, that a miracle attested and witnessed the gospel truth. It was, as it were, proof of the message. Here's the message, and the the miracle proves that it is true. It is the imprimatur of God upon the message and the messenger. And these men rejected the message. They were Jewish exorcists. And yet they presumed to be able to take the very signs that proved the message and use them cut off from the message entirely. They are much like we sang about from Psalm 50. How dare you take the words of God in your mouth when you cast the teaching of God behind you? How dare you despise the gospel truth and the salvation that is in Christ alone and yet presume to use his name to perform miracles? How dare you? We are told in Psalm 50, and it applies here as well, 
There is no magical power in the name of Jesus Christ that any fool can wield to whatever purpose. The only power that is in the name of Jesus Christ is to reveal who he is that we may believe in him unto salvation that we may be united to him and therefore use his name with reverence and honor and call upon him truly by faith and receive from him blessings. Apart from faith, apart from union with Christ, using the name of Christ is but profane. And these men presume to do so to cast out a demon. Well, notice that they receive the just reward of their actions. In verse 15, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? The evil spirit you see in God's providence despise these men as unknown and insignificant peons. Who are they? How would they dare to come before his great power, the power of a demon, and attempt to cast him out? In fact, these men are sons of the devil, as the Lord Jesus would say in John chapter 8. And so they come in the same kingdom as these demons, but of a lower nature, and presume in their arrogance that they can cast out the greater members of this same kingdom. The demons look upon them and laugh and say, How dare you come to us? Who even are you? And despise them as unknown and clearly impotent in this kingdom in which they seek to dwell and rather seek to interact with. You see, there is no union with Christ for them. It would have been different, of course, if they came as true believers in Christ in the name of Christ, authorized by the Lord Jesus to cast out these demons. It would have been different if they were united to the Lord Jesus as his children. The demons would recognize that. They recognize Paul in that way. What is interesting here, actually, is that there are two different words this demon uses for know in our passage. Jesus, I know. There's a sort of uh, absoluteness to that knowledge. Jesus, oh, I know him. And then with Paul, it is a bit lesser. I'm acquainted with Paul, even. Paul is a secondary knowledge. The Lord Jesus, they know because they're but fallen angels who once were in the very presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They know the triune God. How many times when Jesus was on this earth did demons run up to him, fall on their faces, declare he is the Son of the Highest, and say, Have you come to torment me? They know Jesus Christ, and they tremble. They also know Paul. They know his servants, but only in a secondary way. That is, only in relation to Jesus. Jesus I know, and because you are one of his, I know you too somewhat. 
We are known as those who are united to Christ. We are known relative to the Lord Jesus in whom we enjoy union. And the Apostle Paul in particular is known because he is sending out his garments throughout this region and healing and casting out all these demons. Yes, Jesus I know. Paul I'm familiar with as well. But who are you? And so he despises these men as having no standing in this kingdom, but rather overpowers them, enraged by their insolence, overpowers them, puts them to an open shame, tearing off their clothes, beats them, harms them, and sends them running out in this condition. Matthew Henry puts it this way as he speaks of this act. Let them not be deceived. God is not mocked, nor shall the glorious name of Jesus be prostituted to such a vile purpose as this. What communion hath Christ with Belial? The evil spirit gave them a sharp reply. Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? I know that Jesus has conquered principalities and powers, and that Paul has authority in his name to cast out devils. But what power have you to command us in his name, or who gave you any such power? What have you to do to declare the power of Jesus, or to take his covenant and commands in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction? Anti-Christian powers and factions pretend a mighty zeal for Jesus and Paul, and to have authority from them, but when the matter comes to be looked into, it is a mere worldly secular interest that is to be thus supported. Nay, it is an enmity to true religion. Jesus we know, and Paul we know, but who are you? Almost something you could say to a number of TV evangelists. Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? Who presume to speak in the name of the Lord such things contrary to the will of God? Second, the man in whom the evil spirit was fell foul upon them, leaped upon them in the height of his frenzy and rage, overcame them in all their enchantments, prevailed against them, was every way too hard for them, so that they fled out of the house not only naked but wounded, their clothes pulled off their backs and their heads broken. This is written for a warning to all those who name the name of Christ, but do not depart from iniquity. The same enemy that overcomes them with his temptations will overcome them with his terrors. And they're adjuring him in Christ's name, trying to have an oath or magical formula in Christ's name to let them alone, will be of no security to them. If we resist the devil by a true and lively faith in Christ, he will flee from us. But if we think to resist him by the bare using of Christ's name or any part of his word as a spell or charm, he will prevail against us. That is precisely what these men did, and they paid the price for it. But notice there is a second group we find in the following verses, verses 17 through 20, that responded very differently. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. They feared and magnified the name of Jesus. But why? Think about this. These men went into this room in the name of Jesus. 
and they fled naked and beaten afterwards. How then does this engender a greater honor and respect for the name of Jesus when it seems to have failed in this case? It would not, if anyone had believed in the least, that these men actually represented Christ Jesus. If they thought in the least these were the true representatives of Jesus, and his name had failed so utterly in this case, it would have led to the opposite. But no one had any thought that these men truly represented Jesus Christ because they had already seen the power of the name of Jesus Christ in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, his true representative. And so when they saw the power of this demon wreaked upon these impostors, they were all the more impressed with the power, the real power, of Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way by way of analogy. Imagine that you saw a man stand up to a group of bullies impressively. With wit, he embarrassed them and put them to shame. And then when it came time to it, with physical ability, he beat them off and put them to shame again. And you admire his power and ability And you're inspired by it. So you go out and you decide to stand up to the next group of bullies. And and you begin to talk, but you find yourself mumbling and trembling. And then when it comes time for fighting, you are beaten down. And you say to yourself, what? I underestimated the greatness of what it took to stand up to bullies. I underestimated the true abilities that man had. By contrast... And so too here we see these men boldly go into the place of a demon and try to exorcise him. And they are the ones naked and bleeding, fleeing away from the scene. And the people said, we didn't really understand the greatness of the power of the name of Jesus Christ that came and cast out demons without any resistance whatsoever, who fled before his name when his true disciples came. Now we see the true power of evil and the overwhelming almighty power of the name of Jesus Christ by contrast. And so all the more they feared and magnified the name of the Lord. But also notice this led them to repentance in verses 18 through 19. It led to repentance by those who believed. Many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Well, how can this be if we are true believers? Have we not repented unto life? Well, yes, but all of us still sin, don't we? All of us still have even hidden sins and secret sins that we might even cherish. And here, when the Lord demonstrates the greatness and the power of his name, when he demonstrates the power he has over evil and men fear him and begin to honor him, they do so by turning in repentance to him above all. Because they are recognizing that in the name of the Lord Jesus alone is power to free us from all evil. And they fear the power of evil over them as they see its results in these imposters. 
And so they turn trembling to the Lord, recognizing what they are dabbling in, recognizing what they are secretly cherishing in their lives, that which would destroy them. And looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who is able to free them from the power of evil, they turn in confession to him, as we all ought to do. And they recognize that he alone provides hope to be freed from these things. In particular, they're speaking of superstitious practices. We see that is the context of this, these deeds that are mentioned here, the context of the exorcism before, and then the context of bringing out their magical books to burn afterwards. These deeds in particular refer to those things that were... Uh, Items of superstitious idolatry. Now, how often is it that we as Christians can still be involved or impressed with superstition? How many Christians uh, have the, the view that fortune cookies actually might mean something to them or a sign they saw in their life they interpreted as some sort of mystical sign that has meaning for them? Or have a dream and say, this dream is clearly telling me what I ought to do. Or have some item that they say, this item is really special in in terms of, of religious significance to me. How many Christians, for example, might have a cross necklace and say, I cannot go outside without this cross necklace. I cannot go and and face any dangers without the cross necklace with me because it is this cross necklace that brings me near to God. It is not. That is superstition. That is not in the scriptures. How many Christians have superstitious practices that they're involved in? It is one thing, of course, to say, Everything in life has meaning because of the providence of God and we interpret it according to the word of God. It is another to impute in some item or or number or formula or thing you see. Significance of religious import as if we have this Gnostic mystical knowledge of God. That is superstition. And even Christians can be involved in superstition, and if so, we are called to repent of it and turn to the only one who gives us hope to be freed from evil. Notice that these Christians turned to the Lord in repentance, and many came bringing their magical books and burning them in the sight of all. You see, Ephesus was rife with this superstition. Ephesus had massive amounts of books with these incantations and spells and magical formulas. Because think of it. Think if you had a loved one who was sick and dying or a demon was possessing someone you loved. And there is somebody else who said, well, if you buy this book, There are formulas in here that will so control the unseen forces of this world that you can free your loved one from that evil. How much would you spend to buy it? And so these Ephesians have spent massive amounts of money on these books. 
we are told 50,000 pieces of silver. If this refers to uh, the common denomination of money, which it likely does, it means 50,000 daily wages. In Matthew 20, verse 2, remember that a farmer hired people to work in his field and he offered them one piece of silver for a day's labor, which was apparently the ordinary amount. Well, here then you have 50,000 days' wages worth of books. To put that into numbers that we understand today, if you look at the minimum wage in our state, it is 11.15 per hour. Say an eight-hour day at 11.15 is $89.20 times 50,000 days wages or day labor. It is close to $4.5 million worth of books. This city has spent a great deal of money on these books, investing their hope in these magical formulas and incantations. They had longed to have power to free themselves and loved ones from evil by virtue of these books. They had massive treasures invested in them. But when the true power of Jesus Christ had come to their land and demonstrated the almighty power and hope that is in God alone. They so turned to the Lord and said, you are our only hope of salvation. You're the only one who can save us from evil. They so fully turned to the Lord that they took everything they'd hoped in before and destroyed it. They did not bury it. Perhaps they'll need it later. They did not sell it. Perhaps others can benefit from it. They burned them and said, we are done with this evil. We are done. We have no hope in these things. All of our hope is invested now in Jesus Christ. So have God's people always destroyed their idols. Moses took the golden calf and burned it and ground it into powder and put it into the water and made Israel drink it. So God's people have always said, if we have an idol the proper way to deal with it is to utterly eradicate it and destroy it. So these people did. Perhaps such is what we should do today. Do you have a a book or a magazine at home that you really ought not? You know that. Do you have some object in which you invest some mystical power, think too much of it, and trust in it in some way? Destroy it. Repent of that sin and destroy it before the Lord. That is what these Ephesians did as a mighty testimony that they trusted in the Lord and in the Lord alone with abandon of all else. And so they came and they burned these books as a testimony of their faith in Christ Jesus and in him alone. And the word ministry grew. We see that in our final verse. The word of the Lord grew mindfully and prevailed. It grew mindfully in terms of prevailing against those who are unsaved and bringing them into the kingdom of God, converting their souls. 
It grew mightily, as we see in our passage, especially in believers, where they repented of their sins and were sanctified and drew near to God in great assurance and hope of salvation in Jesus alone. The word grew mightily by the power of God, both to turn unbelievers to Jesus Christ and believers more fully to Jesus Christ. It was a glorious day of victory in Ephesus. As we consider this, and we ought to recognize again that superstition is nothing else than blind men in the dark inventing principles and ways to manipulate and control the unseen spiritual realm. They go even in profanity using some of the truth but yielding it blindly in their own judgment, in their own way, and for their own harm. That's superstition. But as Christians, we have the light of God's word by which we see the spiritual realm clearly. Therefore, especially we learn that we must cling to Jesus Christ in faith, forsaking all sin and all idols, trusting and hoping in him alone to be freed from evil. For the word of God has prevailed upon us. May it continue to prevail mightily upon us, turning us evermore to glorify and magnify the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come before you, we acknowledge that we have used our mouth for profane things, that we have looked to idols for our hope and help in times when we should only have looked to you. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed each day. And we ask that you, in your great mercy and your kindness to us, your faithfulness to your promises, your love that endures forever, that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, give us the strength to put to death sin in our members and to destroy the idols of our lives. And grant that we, therefore, might turn to the Lord Jesus Christ alone in hope and in uh, an acknowledgement of salvation, him Jehovah saves alone. Bless us in this way, Lord. Help us in this way, we pray. And now we do pray the very prayer that our Lord Jesus has taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.